California, products made from masa, tortillas, tamales, tortilla chips, have practically become a staple of our diets. Masa isn't from the yellow or white corn cobs you see in the grocery store, but from special varietals that make sure a fresh tortilla has that softness, that tang we all love. Our guest today goes all the way to Oaxaca to ensure their masa not only tastes great, but preserves a culture of corn growing, not even present here in the United States. It's just, it's just awesome. Like, how cool is it that we can kind of complete this cycle of not just preserving the actual raw materials, but the traditions aren't going to continue if people aren't marveling at what it is and know what it is. And I think we feel just as a, our part is just as much in that preservation as it is on the, on the supply chain side. Jorge Gaviera went from Michelin restaurants to driving bags of masa around Manhattan to establishing Macienda here on the West Coast. I'm Colleen King. And I'm Carolyn Kissick. Thanks for joining us on Sorceress today for this episode on heirloom corn, where we aren't talking farm to table, but something similar, milpa to mesa. Welcome to Sorceress. Welcome to Sorceress. Jorge, cool guy. So cool. We really bonded with him right away. We're all restaurant people from our previous lives or current lives, I guess it never really goes away. You're just on the same level right away. Like you've all been through the same the same crazy stuff and it's just really easy to get into good conversation. Yeah, and it's so cool to think about him working in these. I mean, his resume is pretty, pretty insane. He's worked for Danny Meyer at Maialino and then Dan Barber's Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which you've been to, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And actually, his first account was Cosme, which is Enrique Oliveira's New York City concept. So hard hitters right there in the restaurant industry. Mad respect from us. But it, you just would never know. He was like so humble. And he's like on a mission to just get really amazing heirloom corn and tortillas to people. One of the things that affects corn specifically is NAFTA. NAFTA is the North American Free Trade Agreement. It was signed into effect January 1st, 1994, and it immediately lifted tariffs on goods between the signatory nations. So Mexico, Canada, United States. What did you understand about the what happened with corn? I mean, historically, corn, heirloom corn, has been the staple of cuisine in in Mexico, right? They were sort of booming in terms of export and internal consumption. And then once NAFTA was passed, it really flipped. I mean, they started importing corn. So I think when we think about these policies, it really affects what people are planting, the, the farmers, their choices in terms of how they need to pivot. And so we put so many subsidies on American corn that we started exporting it to Mexico. Yeah, and most of the corn in the U.S. is actually not grown for human consumption, but is for other reasons. And that is the number two yellow corn, which is the commodity variety. These commodity names are really fun. Do you have that in coffee? Is there like... Well, actually, when I first got into green trading, it was sort of a place that straddled specialty and commodity. And the commodity grades, I didn't understand because I had only worked with like fully traceable coffees that had farmer names. And then I got there and it was like Serato 1415. I didn't even know, like, what does that mean? Do you know what the numbers mean? Yeah, it's size. Oh. But that's that's because it's so giant. It's commodity style. So it's huge. It's, It's not meant to be traceable, right? And so it's just... Sorted by size, sorted by color. Interesting. And then just to go a little bit further down that path, Mexico as a importer of corn is the second largest importer of corn worldwide behind Japan. 
do they use like a lot of ethanol? We need to do some research on that. If you're in Japan and you're listening, let us know uh, what you're doing with all that corn. Yeah, tell us what your corn game is. <laughs> Sometimes we get comments that Colleen and I have uh, ASMR voices, so I'm going to do a little food porn here for you if you've never had a fresh tortilla. So what happens is you make a big batch of masa, and with these little, they look like little ice cream scoops, you take a scoop out and you put it in a tortilla press. You press it really flat, and then it goes on a comal, which is a, a flat-topped grill, and you put it on, on one side, and then when that side kind of firms up, flip it over to the other, and it's just slightly crispy on the outside and perfectly soft on the inside, and you get these flavors of lime and salt and earth, and you can, you know, you probably have like 10 seconds before it gets too cold where you lose all of this like preciousness to this tortilla. But if you haven't found a fresh tortilla in your life, get some. <laughs> the places you'll go with Lazarus. I mean, it was cool to see their space because I knew his resume and I was like, what kind of space does someone with this like legacy work that's doing this other kind of innovative work, where do they, what kind of space do they have? And we, we got to West LA and it was pallets of heirloom corn and like three people just like working hard heads down. It, yeah. was, it was so awesome. On our way out, Jorge poured us and some nice shots of mezcal and sent us out with some gusano salt, which is made with worms. And I got stopped at the airport for that. Did they, you? Yeah, but they didn't take it. I, I got to take it with me. Jorge very sweetly poured us two shots and I can't really process alcohol. So Carolyn had to take both. And then she hops in a lift and off she was to go to Mexico. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. I was uh, getting on a plane directly to Mexico after this episode. So I was nice and warmed up. Anyways, big thank you to Jorge and the whole Masienda team for hosting us at the office for the interview, and we'll get right into it. Here we go. Let's first go into this aspect of heirloom, probably the most identifiable product that we all see at the market is heirloom tomatoes, right? They're always beautifully colored, and it usually means that they're a little bit more expensive, but... What does this mean when we're applying it to corn specifically? First thing we'll start with is that there's a difference between grain corn and sweet corns. Grain corn is obviously the kind that is incredibly dry, usually below 14% moisture content. It's shelf stable, relatively speaking, and it's used to make pretty much most of the dishes and most of the industrial byproducts that we we know and, and rely on today. Sweet corn is the really delicious stuff that we grow, you know, during summertime. It's pretty seasonally driven. It's fresh. It's perishable. And that's a really, really small percentage of the corn that's grown in the world. So that's the first thing. Heirloom corn, like heirloom anything, is just something that has been passed down like an heirloom from generation to generation, which kind of imbues coveted quality to it. In the U.S., we've taken some liberties with what is some what is heirloom, and some of it has been more commercialized than others. In some cases, there are heirloom seeds that have been hybridized, which means they'll take sort of genetic traits and they'll make sure that those are kind of replicating themselves over and over and over again without really kind of at the, at the expense of the rest of the genetics in that pool. Heirloom seeds that we work with in Mexico have been passed down in, in many cases in communities for generations, generations centuries even. They are highly coveted because they have a really particular significance to the culinary uh, traditions of that region. 
They've also, more importantly, they've acclimated to that region by this point, hundreds of years, decades even, you know, they have the opportunity to now integrate with the soil, understand the soil and how to survive best in it. And so particular drought prone areas, you'll notice that root structures are a little bit shallower. They don't go as deep. So they're able to collect that water very easily when it hits. That that same variety, that same heirloom isn't going to thrive in different tropical part of the you know the region or the state because it, it doesn't need to that way. Yeah, and your approach to taking on an import project like this, an heirloom product, it's really unique in that some ways you kind of took a step across the aisle from the glamorous side of food. service and restaurants over to the less glamorous and often kind of invisible side of food sourcing. Tell me how you got here. I was working at Blue Hill Stone Barns in Picantico Hills, and uh, I was really searching for something meaningful to marry the work that I was doing in the restaurant to my own business and something that served a higher purpose insofar as like taking the mission that I was living out day to day at Blue Hill and applying that to something outside of the restaurant. I think so much of what I was learning at Blue Hill is like, there are so many different ways to promote better agriculture and better eating. Like those two are better, you know, are are inextricably linked. But what we need are more folks, whether it's chefs or farmers or businesses to be able to solve problems that speak to particular ingredients. I think just solving for the higher potential that food has that is underused right now. Through my time there, I realized like, okay, well, if we're going to tackle an ingredient, like if there's any ingredient coming at it from that perspective, that really needs to be improved or that has a pretty bad reputation. It's, I'd say it's corn. You know, I would walk through supermarkets and just see like, all right, you've got all of these vegetables and ingredients that people are really romantic about, you know, whether that's coffee, whether that's kale, which was like another Dan Barber trophy produce moment, right? But like corn is just something that just doesn't have a lot of legs in or respect in, you know, American cuisine in a real way. It's usually vilified as Franken food. It's pretty much the poster child of the genetically modified movement. At best, we're really only consuming like, I don't know, like one and a half percent of what's consumed in human food. Most of what's grown is for ethanol and for cattle feed. And the more I started to understand that, I was really, really just captivated by this potential of making it better. But before you can make it even better, I was like, well, what is it that we're eating? Where does it even come from? And it was so hard to find a connection to where my ethanol was coming from. There was a blockchain for ethanol. It's just coming from like, you know, the center of the country and like in a huge grain bin and that's it. Uh, And so, and I figured that like my cereal or my tortillas or my tortilla chips were probably coming from the same place. You know, it left more to be desired because there's just such an amazing journey that takes place when you figure out where something's coming from and you make that choice of participating in it or not. I decided like, I don't want to participate in this, or I at least want to explore if there's something better. And you just go down the foodway path for corn and you end up realizing like, okay, this is all coming from Mexico. The birthplace of corn is in Mexico. I should probably start there. That's like ground zero. And, uh, and that's what I did. NAFTA has a huge part in why, like you said, our ethanol comes from a large grain bin in the middle of the U.S., but the birthplace of corn is and will remain to be Mexico. This policy caused a shift not only in corn as like a food product, but as a commodity product and in some way kind of the shift of people who've sustained on it for centuries, right? Like essentially like with NAFTA passing, what it effectively meant was, yeah, there's no tariffs anymore. But what that allowed was for the first time, like real, un, almost like unregulated commodity dumping. 
corn being like one of the number one commodities that's produced in the United States, the United States is certainly the number one producer of corn in the world. Mm -hmm. Where does that all go if you don't have enough folks to use it for food in the United States? Like a lot of it goes to Mexico. Of course, like it has been a major lever in the conversations between the current administration in Mexico and like Mexico fires back being like, you know, we buy a lot of corn from you, so you should probably cool your jets, which is true. There was this unbelievable kind of watershed moment in 1994 with NAFTA that apparently, like according to these articles I was reading at the time, did a lot of harm. And it also hastened, I wouldn't say like a mass exodus, but certainly like a larger diaspora than normal. Mm -hmm. Because people were now affected, like if, if I was growing corn and now I'm competing with commodity corn that's flooding the market from the United States, and I have this heirloom corn, people are going to pay commodity prices for it. That's what that's what I'm up against. If it's available in the market and you compare apples to apples, one's cheaper, most folks would just kind of vote with their, their pocketbooks. And the government in Mexico certainly wasn't helping things in that way. Mm-hmm. So what it did, I mean, people essentially voted with their feet. They got up, they left, they crossed the border, and they went to the United States to find jobs. And essentially what you what you started to see over the course of a decade, and by that point, we're now talking 24, 13 is when I was doing this research, almost 20 years go by. I'm like, what happens? What are some of the patterns? Well, if you don't have as many folks on a farm, like a family farm subsistence operation, growing corn and maintaining it, mm-hmm. you're probably going to like downsize the amount of the land that's dedicated to the heirloom corn you've been growing, right? Which means that now the preservation like is narrowing. There's less and less of it that's being produced, which means that if, God forbid, anything happens to a certain population of genetic material, if like a hurricane comes by and wipes something out on the coast, or if there's a particularly bad drought that really just wipes something out, the genetics are in peril there. They survive. The more people are actually using it um, and growing it and and cultivating it. That and like all of the tradition that comes with it. If you don't have the same corn that's making the the large format tlayudas that you find in Oaxaca, well, you're not going to have as many tlayudas, which means that the regional cooking and the regional kitchen is going to be affected. And like then the same way language stands to become extinct, same thing in, in agriculture, but driven by different forces. All essentially globalization, but at the end of the day, this was the problem. And Oaxaca is the region in Mexico that you specifically focus on, or are there others as well? The majority of our work is focused in Oaxaca. We definitely do sourcing in other parts of Mexico. But Oaxaca, for sure, it's the most biodiverse state in the entire country. So even though it's about four and a half percent land share, the majority of the country's biodiversity is in that state, which is unbelievable. That's so amazing. I think here in the States, we're so used to thinking of corn growing in large, flat plains in the middle of the country that we can't even imagine these landscapes that you're describing right now. Yeah, that's the crazy thing is that the biodiversity is really based on kind of also the myriad conditions that you can find in Oaxaca. So you'll have tropical, you'll have subtropical, you'll have highland, you'll have desert, you'll have all sorts of of different conditions to promote different types of of breeds of corn. And and then the culinary applications that come with it. So once you're inspired by this movement and all of these pieces that come along with it, what steps did you take to really nail the plan to the ground and get things started? How did you find yourself getting the product to the table and then ultimately these amazing chefs? I ended up connecting with, you know, organizers on the ground who had been in one way or another working with smaller farmers, whether on the preservation side and the seed bank side or like the agronomy side to to understand a particular landscape in Oaxaca. Um, and that was sort of our starting place. And, you know, had they not been doing the work they'd been doing for 30 plus years, I want to be the first one to say, like, we probably would not have, you know, be sitting here today because 
so many folks had cared about this and I just, you know, I recognized the potential to create that work into kind of a more sustainable model that ideally like benefits everybody, right? I remember because I had been working at Blue Hill, I had a lot of contact with chefs and particularly um, one chef named Enrique Olvera who had come at, uh, you know, to Stone Barns at an event that Dan hosted. And I remember being like, you know, I checked this guy's coat, right? Like for sure he remembers me. And like, I'll just reach out to him because I heard he was opening up this restaurant in New York called Cosme. And I thought, well, you know, maybe he'll buy my tortillas. Like I should probably have at least like one dedicated customer before I like commit to opening up this tortilleria. And so I got in touch with him. I even mentioned that I think I checked his coat or something like that. He remembered who I was. Maybe he was just being nice, but he said, you know, I really, I have no interest ultimately in like tortillas, but I certainly need corn because we're planning on doing this process in-house. And it's the one ingredient I just don't feel like is firing on all cylinders from what we found in the U.S. So he's like, if you can get the corn in time, he's like, if you can get this in two months, basically, you know, we'll be your customer. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, but also terrifying. Like, I have no idea how to import this stuff. How do you find a pallet? Yeah, I, we had our first customer. Uh, he, he wanted to buy the corn. And so uh, we weren't going to say no. We kind of shelved the tortilla idea and just focused on building the supply chain first. The truth was, is that once once Cosme was reviewed and it was a really you know, it was a really well-deserved review because they did such an enormous amount of cultural studies in New York to make sure that they were reaching their audience in the right way and the most effective way. But just the quality was just phenomenal. I mean, it was the first time you could go to a restaurant and have a single origin tortilla. This was something that I was just like, gosh, this is like, this is like coffee. Like, you know, we gotta, we gotta think about this through the prism of coffee um, to get people to realize that corn is so similar in this way. The critic totally got it wrote a glowing review, a paragraph was dedicated to tortillas and like this soliloquy about how it smelled like roses and like baby cheek and all delicious things in one. Um, and sure enough, people wanted to then participate because no one had been talking about it. And it was just, it opened up this conversation that there is such a difference, you know, in not only corn, but the tortillas that are uh, ultimately come from that corn and the process that's involved in it. Let's take some time to not just take that for granted and as chefs lean into that process a little more. Yeah, so I want to go back to the agricultural side of things here and take us down the farm aisle of the corn that you're sourcing and help us connect with what that actually looks like versus what we see here in the States. That was the most, like, for sure that was the most visibly striking difference when I first went down to Oaxaca, which is that I was expecting tractors and very large plots of land. And the truth is that in the average Iowa farmer, I think they have about 333 acres of land that they manage. Obviously, there's exceptions to that, but, you know, as of a couple of years ago, that was the metric. Our farmers are subsistence farmers, so they're not doing this intrinsically for the commercial benefit of it. The first priority is feed themselves, feed their family, feed their community. You know, even still, we're talking about like maybe five acres compared to 333 acres. So just very small, right? And then going back to Oaxaca and how biodiverse the landscape is itself, that might be on a on a relatively flat plain in a valley in like the central valleys of Oaxaca. Or if you're talking about the coastal region where it's pretty much just mountains, you're literally growing on the side of a mountain at a crazy pitch nauseating pitch uh, that is just like it's terrifying to look down and that's actually where we've actually been able to do the majority of our work and where we've kind of doubled down in our commitment to the area because I just think like you know it's one just the amount of work that goes into it we just want to celebrate that right and just show that there are different ways to go about feeding communities than 
the stereotypical images we associate with it. You know, we're talking about no automation, really. There is no, you can't get a tractor on the side of a mountain. First of all, what does a mountain look like before somebody's come through and cleared it? Pretty grisly. Lots of brush, trees. It's just a gnarly area. So that has to be cleared out every year. And uh, not just in that spot, because they don't want to exhaust that land. They want to come back to it every eight years. So that means every year you're starting all, like, all over from scratch to clear a particular area. So you're doing it sustainably. You have to clear the land. You have to hand plant every single plant, um, which is not necessarily just corn in some cases. A lot of folks will grow, like I was saying, you know, beans and squash and chilies and mix that kind of all in together because they complement one another in the soil. You know, especially if folks are really are, are diligent about organic practices, which a lot are, you're hand weeding things on your hands and knees, literally just clearing things out. Again, you're on the side of a mountain. And then, you know, the, the harvesting process, no combines, right? Like you're, you're taking every single cob off the, uh, off the plant, you're throwing it into basically like a backpack and you're walking down the mountain to drop it all off so that you can take it down at the end of your day. I mean, it's backbreaking work. And even the shelling process, like everything is hand done, like literally, you know, rubbing two cobs against each other to, to create enough friction to get the cobs to come off or the, the kernels to come off. It's just, it's an insane, unless you see it, it's just hard to appreciate how much work really goes into doing it. So tell us what harvest looks like. The corn's dried on the stalk. I don't know. I was kind of imagining that it was removed first and then dried. Oh, no. Else. No, no. They're like, literally, they're romantically, but like out of necessity, they're just, they're sun dried in the field until they get to the right moisture content. Like certainly there's some specialty dishes where it's like maybe like elotes, right? Like some corn will allow that where it's not so dense and so starchy that you can actually like enjoy it in a fresh kind of milky state. Or you can have it just like, just two months before harvesting and you can make tortillas. It's called uh, uh, with maiz nuevo, like with new corn, um, right? That's like kind of sweeter and a little, it's definitely like a softer tortilla. Um, it's more of like a dessert, like specialty around that time of year. But yeah, by and large, we're talking about really, really dry. You cannot eat it on your own without like breaking your teeth. Okay, so that's the corn, but now let's talk tortilla. So um, a lot of tortillas today are made with maseca or some version of maseca, masa harina, which is masa flour, basically. It's kind of the bisquick version of tortillas where you just add water and you magically have a tortilla after you like press it and bake it. I totally understand where that is in the world and how it got to where it is. It's incredibly convenient. You know, it's hard to deny how convenient it is, especially when you compare it to what I'm about to say, which is the nixtamal process and everything that comes with it. Yeah, but I love it. Nixtamalization is one of my favorite stories to tell people about corn. And so if we're going to make a tortilla from scratch, what's that really going to run us time-wise and effort-wise? If you're not using masa harina and you want to make a corn tortilla from scratch, which is really the true way to make it from scratch, Nixtamalization is the first step in that process where you basically soak the corn in an alkaline solution. You know, historically, everything from mussel shells to ash has been used more commercially and kind of commonly you'll find calcium hydroxide um, as the kind of the main alkaline ingredient that's used to jumpstart this process. Uh, Nixtamalization is a almost like it's, it's alchemy for corn. It's Without this process, you would really not get much of the nutrients that are naturally available in corn. And the added benefit of using calcium hydroxide or something that's kind of got a calcium base in it um, is that it's imparting um, also quite a bit of calcium in it. So 
you just get this like unbelievable, it goes in kind of like an empty calorie and then it comes out this unbelievable superfood that through the just soaking, it's literally cooking and soaking in a high alkaline bath. Yeah, alkaline water. Like it's been way cooler for way longer than most people will give it credit for. And I think it also like, it's important to um, also say like, this process came at a time when corn wasn't just being grown as a monoculture. Like, you know, you could grow the corn, the beans, and the squash that were traditionally grown with one another and the three sisters of agriculture to make like an entirely holistically balanced, nutrient-dense meal every meal of the day with basically just three things. From like an agricultural perspective, from just like human divine intervention, like it's one of the most amazing stories of just I mean, largely it catalyzed an entire civilization, just figuring out how to nixtamalize corn, how to grow corn, how to like domesticate corn and then make it nutritious. It's freaking amazing. So anyway, nixtamalization goes through that crazy process. It's like, you know, traditionally it'll be done for eight to 12 hours. Then the, you know, the alkaline water starts doing its work. It starts penetrating the cell walls and the kernel, it'll loosen the skins of the, you know, like the skins that get stuck in your teeth from popcorn. (laughs) So that's like the very outer part of the corn kernel. Okay. It'll loosen that so that the corn can now start to absorb that, that kind of that calcium bath that it's in. And that's where that sort of that nutrient alchemy takes place. Now you can, like after you go through this process, you'll be able to absorb the niacin that's naturally found in the corn. So when that's done, you then have to get like a really kind of crazy looking like contraption called a, a, a mill, like a molino. It's a wet mill. It, it kind of just binds all of these things that have just happened into one cohesive dough. Um, it sounds really simple. It's like, well, mills happen all over the place. It's such a technically like difficult process to do if you're not used to it because, you know, it's a, it's a wet process. So you got to control for the stones getting too hot. Um, assuming you're using like an electrical mill. Um, you've got to, um, you know, be feeding it correctly because if it's not always being fed at the right speed into the stones, like the stones can burn out against one another. I mean, it's just like, it's an incredibly artisanal process is I guess what I'm trying to say that ends up going into a lot of the tortillas that we make and or certainly all the tortillas we make, but a lot of the tortillas we make is like a, as a country. Um, and nobody realizes this, like how much work goes into a tortilla. It's way more than anyone would ever think. I've never even run the mill part, but just making a tortilla from masa by hand is challenging. And in addition, the time that you put into that, we were talking time here, but we haven't even gotten to the money part of all of this. You know, restaurant margins are slim. What are your finances like here? So we've taken on a small amount of investment from like very friendly people, you know, friends and family. In the very beginning, so I was making all the deliveries, first truckload, two truckloads, three truckloads I got. I would drive to New Jersey where I kept things at a, you know, frozen storage facility. Another cost to add to the bucket of cogs, right? You know, from there, I would pick it up. I would load it into my car. I had a two-door Volkswagen golf so like i would put as much weight i was like all right 200 per passenger so this could fit like four more people and then i'll like triple that so i'll put like that much corn inside of the corn in the car i would drive around new york i would make the deliveries my suspension basically like would break every week the price i charged at that time was like reflective of all of that that went into it right it was like i think at the time starting out it was between like two dollars and eighty cents and three dollars and twenty five cents depending on the variety it was which I look back and I'm like, well, that's cheaper than some of the, the quote unquote heirloom companies that are selling things out there today. And I say quote, because like there's a range of products that everybody offers. But I was like, well, yeah, that's kind of lower than what people are used to seeing for restaurants and like maybe they'll do it. But what I didn't really anticipate at that time was just the volume that people were going through. It's not like you're taking a bag of corn for grits or 
for hominy, it's all of a sudden you are now going through like a 50 pound bag in a day for service to make 110 pounds of masa or whatever. So yeah, I was like, okay, we need to like get this price down no matter what, <laughs> even if it means, you know, like I can't pay for gas, like I'll get a credit card or something like that. So kind of the story was first there, like how do we just meet the value proposition where chefs are at? And it's still, you know, it's still going down. Like we're still trying to find ways to make it as accessible as possible. Like we started out at like I said, 220 or 280 to 325, we're at like $1.10 a pound. That's a, a long way. Obviously, that eats into margins, that eats into all the things that, and, and people still think it's expensive. We have to do a better job without wearing it on our sleeve, which is that classic balance of like showing people what the value is and where that value is. It's not like we're just buying corn. I think a common misperception is we just buy corn at a really low, quote unquote, low price. We bring it here and we sell for an incredibly high price. It was so expensive to make that happen, and there are a lot of people that touch that along the way, not even just us. Communities in Mexico who we employ to be able to do this kind of stuff, to the freight forwarders, to the drivers, to the customs broker, to the... It's like anybody who's in this understands that, but, you know, we still have to work against the perception and ultimately, like, the price of commodity corn, which is five times less than that. You know, we're excited. Like, I think we're at that point where we've, we've felt that we can still show that this is, you know, the price is reflective of the premium that it is without being anything different than any other business of trying to get a very, very basic margin just to be sustainable. And yeah, like the volumes have grown, I think, to a, like a comfortable place where we can now manage forecasting and kind of, it will never be on the same level as commodity corn, right? It's, it's uh, even though there's a ton of volume in Mexico to support it, it's just not, it's not price competitive that way. Sure. You understand your positioning in the market at this point, but it's also a seasonal crop. And with all these additional challenges built in with it coming from another country, how do you deal with the market supply and demand on a regular basis? What we ended up realizing is like, we basically just have to commit in a very short period of the year to exactly what we're going to buy. And we don't have the luxury, and I honestly, at this point, it would be a luxury to contract with growers because it would just, you know, there would be so much more kind of seamless transactional processing happening here. It's essentially like a a very sophisticated spot market that Mm -hmm. we kind of just have to purchase exactly what's available depending on all of the factors that I was kind of alluding to, whether it's the growing conditions, the the rain or the not. Um, You know, if a hurricane comes through, like, and it wipes out the entire thing, you know, there's not much, it's like, we're certainly not going to come in there and take all the corn that's left. This is meant for human consumption, household consumption. What we ended up resorting to is we're just like, we're going to buy as much as we possibly can within reason. That created a really great benefit for farmers who participate, which is that, you know, it's a, it's completely risk-free. It's not like they get paid when it makes its way to our customer. Mazienda assumes all risk for that product the second we take it on. And we lose a lot of product the second we take it on because, you know, you're not using any pesticides um, or anything kind of on a post-harvest handling basis to treat the corn with chemicals or fumigants. Yeah, bugs really like tasty corn, just like humans like tasty corn, right? And maybe even more so. So we had lots of loss in the very beginning and still get loss um, quite a bit around, you know, like bugs just burrowing their way into it um, in that 30-day period that we used to kind of quarantine everything. Where we are today, having done every part in the supply chain, including a retail kind of value-added product, is that it's helped really distill what our mission is, which I think ultimately, and I'm still grappling with what the words are, but 
I get the most excitement, our team gets the most excitement from connecting with food through the sourcing to the process of the food and being like active participants in it and sharing that. And you do a lot of education around that, right? So for our particular product, corn, um, you know, we've, we've realized like most people who start an in-house tortilla program like a Cosme have no idea. I mean, Cosme knew because they were coming from Mexico City. This had been something that had been built into Pujol in Mexico City. Most people who are doing this don't have, there's no like text about this stuff. It's like some internet, you know, blog articles here and there and like pretty much good luck, right? So we've really, in order to sell this product, we've had to educate people not just on like what's different about the raw ingredient, but why you're going to be crazy enough to go through this entire process, you know, this like you know, the Milpa Tamesa experience in your restaurant, which is going to incur higher labor costs, which is going to drive some of your staff crazy, but that it's ultimately like the most rewarding thing, right? Like it's just kind of this, it's a labor of love that once you do it, you just can't. You just can't imagine a world where you didn't do it. Jorge, we met through my friend Molly DeCoudreau. You're also also your friend who just had a lovely baby girl. Yeah. <laughs> you met because she is a wonderful photographer and came yeah. down and shot some of the corn, yes, right? Yes, down twice. Yeah, she's yeah. coming on two tours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when you were talking about standing on the pitch of the mountain, mm -hmm. I remember her telling me she had a guy like holding her up while no she joke. was trying to yeah. take a shot. So. Yeah. In um, cowboy boots. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was like, bring boots. <laughs> and she's yeah, awesome. Because she, she, she's stylish and like she made it work. Yeah. Because she's Molly. Yeah, she yeah. is. So what do you love about this? You know, what you're doing with Macienda, the, the path that you've taken. And is there anything else in this same realm that you would want to do? What I love about this is um, just also the ability to understand a culture through what I'm sourcing and like the respect that it gives me for everything. I mean, not even just like the tradition and the culture in C2 and context, but also like how you see that manifest when folks come abroad and work in the US. And I work, you know, with alongside and um, with so many people who come from so many different backgrounds, I think. The Mexico connection has just been profound because it's such a, it, an enormous influence on our demographics and our culture in the United States. I think I would just more love to experience the same level of depth of understanding of a culture through a particular food as I have with corn and kind of jump around in, in different cultures, uh, like understanding it through that for, through that lens and context. Yeah, totally. I definitely feel that with tequila too. Yeah. It's like, it's was, amazing. I love tequila. Don't get me wrong, amazing spirit. So does Molly. Oh, she doesn't like mezcal. She, only she does not. Tequila, she, yeah. And we are. Yeah, you're the same I mean, there. Yeah, yeah, we are. And it's not, I, I like mezcal, mezcal, but like, I am just a tequila person because I've spent so much time in Guadalajara and like the surrounding areas that like the cultural connection for me is that is what it is yeah. all about 100%. Oh, yeah. You know? And that's that's really cool that you've been able to do that. I'm it's happy for you then. Very special. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I won't offer you any mezcal. because so cool, it's yeah. so many. Thanks so much to Jorge for taking the time to chat. You can find Macienda on Instagram at Macienda. And while you're at it, give us a follow as well. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Sorceress underscore underscore. Stay tuned for our musical segment where our music curator discusses the cultural and musical history of the region and the product we just discussed in this episode. And if you haven't yet, please leave us a review wherever you found this podcast. We're a small group of radical women trying to make it happen, and your support means so much. Hey everyone, this is Danielle Maggio, delivering you the sonic sauce of Sorceress. 
Today's segment is inspired by our sourced ingredient, heirloom corn, and the ways in which indigenous communities preserve knowledge of land through ritual labor. I wanted to focus on indigenous forms of music making in honor of the origin place of our sourced ingredient, Oaxaca, Mexico. Oaxaca is home to one of the largest and most thriving indigenous populations in Mexico, accounting for 53% of Mexico's total indigenous language speaking population, which is huge. And the main reason that indigenous languages and cultures have been able to survive in Oaxaca, more so than in other Mexican states, is because of the rugged mountain terrain, which isolated communities from foreign invaders. To be indigenous is to have a connection to the land and a strong working knowledge of it. Harmony between people and the land is one of the foundational ideals of indigeneity. The economy of Oaxaca is based on agriculture, and in order to be successful at agriculture, you need the indigenous knowledge of that land, which has been passed down from generation to generation. One of the most common ways to pass down agricultural knowledge is through ritual music making. Ritual music making is practiced amongst indigenous communities as a direct action to maintain this harmonious relationship to the forces of nature. These songs and dances may be directed to the planting or harvesting of corn, the care of livestock, the turning of the seasons, and any other countless interactions between a community and the natural world. Harvest songs and dances are found all over the world and mark a celebration between the people and the land. A healthy and abundant harvest is a source of life and wellness, a promise for the future. By celebrating it with song and dance, communities celebrate the recurring agricultural cycle that has been passed down throughout the generations. The same land they harvest today was once harvested by their ancestors. Therefore, land and ancestry mutually constitute each other amongst indigenous cultures. Work songs are another element of ritual labor. Instead of singing and dancing in honor of the natural world, work songs are sung while performing hard labor. These songs have a much more explicit function, namely to keep time through musical action, to maintain morale amongst the group that's working, and to preserve knowledge through oral tradition. Work songs are easily identified by their use of call and response singing and the percussive rhythm of hard labor. So the tools used, whether it be bodies, hammers, pestles, or axes, create a steady rhythm that set the pace so the laboring group can work in sync with each other. Within the context of the US, work songs first appeared with the forced migration of West Africans via the transatlantic slave trade. By transplanting a new population of people that was indigenous to another land, the slave trade also transplanted indigenous farming and music-making practices. These West African music-making practices that are directly linked to agricultural labor would go on to form the foundation of gospel, blues, jazz, and rock and roll as we know it today. All over the world, there are indigenous songs that are performed in conjunction with corn planting, harvesting, preparing, and sharing. These ritual songs are understood as essential to the agricultural process itself, a necessary component to the success of the ingredient. For instance, in the Ayacucho region of Peru, groups of women sing to awaken corn before it's prepared in food or beverage. The Seminole people of Southern Florida gather together as a tribe for the corn dance every June after the corn is ripe. 
The Cora people of western central Mexico have a special song for roasting corn, while the Navajo people of southwest America have a special song that must be sung while grinding corn. The Iroquois people of northwest America perform a corn dance to address their female corn deity, who is believed to assist in the harvest. Corn is also found as a common lyric in songs to symbolize life, health, and ancestry. During the Nicaraguan Revolution in the 1980s, protesters often used corn in the lyrics to address the people's ability to sustain themselves without the help of foreign agents, just as their ancestors did. Lyrics like, if they take away our bread, we will be obliged to survive as our grandparents did, with corn fermented in the blood of our heroes, with the corn planted from forever, from even before they drenched our land in blood. Lyrics such as this correlate the ancient presence of corn with an indigenous claim to land. In Ghana, a popular highlife musician named E.T. Mensa had huge success with a song called Abele, which in his indigenous language means corn. Throughout the song, E.T. Mensa calls out Abele, Abele over and over again to represent the notion of abundance and future prosperity for his people. An heirloom is something of value that has been passed down across multiple generations. In the context of our sourced ingredient, heirloom corn comes from farmer-preserved seeds that have been hand-selected and maintained for hundreds, even thousands of years. I'm moved to think of ritual music and work songs as an heirloom, being passed down through the line of traditional inheritance to the present possessor. Ritual music making is an essential element to the success of indigenous ingredients. Agricultural labor, using both seeds and sounds, preserve indigenous knowledge of a land for future generations while honoring the ancestors who labored there generations before. To listen to this week's playlist, as well as access playlists from past episodes, go to Spotify or Apple Music and search for Sorceress. That's S-O-U-R-C-E-R-E-S-S. The playlists are public, but we hope you'll consider subscribing to our podcast so you can get fabulous, fresh updates each week and easily access the playlists. Thank you all so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the sonic sauce of Sorceress. Sorceress is written, directed, and produced by Carolyn Kissick and Colleen King. Our music curator is Danielle Maggio. Theme music by Flatbroke Robot. Special thanks to our donors who all helped make this possible. Megan King, Ray King, Christopher Kissick, Deb Maggio, Gus and Mary Ann Bonderhide, Jose Posadas, Courtney Minnick, Jen Apodaca, Vanessa Brown, Jonathan Joseph, and Max Keeley. We couldn't have done it without you. Thanks for joining us on Sorceress. Until next time, stay curious.